Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by Janus Henderson Investors. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for topics, but the final control of the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Daniel Grania, who is a portfolio manager for emerging market equities with Janus Henderson. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got started in investing and why you chose a career in emerging markets? My grandfather's um, neighborhood hardware store business was nationalized in the Cuban Revolution, which is a fancy way of saying stolen. My father's two brothers uh, became communists and denounced the family uh, as counter-revolutionaries, which made life very uncomfortable for the rest of the family. My mother left failing Peru And I married a Soviet refugee whose family was suffering from religious persecution. So I've always been fascinated why some countries failed their people and while others did not. And that's what led me to spend an entire career in emerging markets. Right. That's not your usual start in the investment business. Where did the investment part come into? (laughs) So uh, I started my career working for the dark side, uh, working as an investment banker, bringing a lot of these companies public and working with sovereigns uh, to raise debt and so forth. And uh, it was very transactional oriented. Obviously, there was a relationship with the underlying client, but it really didn't matter what we were bringing to market so long as the market decided it was worthy of investing in it. At some point in my investment banking career, I realized I wanted to sort of eat my own cooking. Uh, I've always distrust uh, when cooks don't eat their own cooking. Uh, so I thought it was time to sort of switch. And as a portfolio, man- as an analyst first, and then as a portfolio manager, you basically are invested in what you recommend, and, and both as, as, as a, or if you recommend as an analyst, but also as a shareholder of the fund, um, you certainly would bear the sort of same risk and opportunities that other shareholders would have. So it was that uh, need to sort of match what I believed in with uh, what I love and my passion, which is both the w- wonders and, and, the sh- and the shocks and risks of emerging markets. So with that background with uh, Cuban and he said you're married to a Soviet, does that give you sort of a different view on the geopolitical side of emerging markets and some of the tensions we see today with, with maybe the US and China? It certainly gives me a different perspective. What I would say is that far too many of the investor base take the top-down issues for granted, that before the global financial crisis Many, even U.S. investors uh, or European investors would take the political system and the economic system as as a sort of given, and that allowed them to focus on purely bottom-up, which are the right companies to buy and what valuation. And I think what my developed market counterparts have come to realize post the global financial crisis is that the top-down matters. 
that who is a chosen as prime minister or president really matters. And the and so the politics matter and therefore because that that drives economic policy making and the economic policy making will, will determine the kind of uh, current the companies are swimming in or against. And so I think that's because of my personal experience, I've always appreciated that these top down considerations are of paramount importance when investing. It's just that those in the developed markets have caught up to the rest of us in emerging. <laughs> so how does that filter through into your investment philosophy? Do you start with that top down or where does that come into the decision making process? Yes. So what I believe is that emerging markets and companies and countries at a different stage of economic development. And that means that the institutional guardrails are not always there or not always there in the same sort of strength as they are in developed markets. What does that mean? It creates a lot of standard deviation, a lot of opportunities, but also a lot of more risk. The sort of ranges of outcomes are greater in emerging markets. And so my philosophy is when investing in emerging markets that you should hunt in, with good companies, with good governance in good countries. Uh, and that intersection has served me well in all the years and all the sort of boom bust cycles and, and sort of all the volatility that we've seen out of emerging markets is because of that focus, that understanding that it isn't just about picking the right companies. That obviously is important. Let's not, let's not uh, sort of de-emphasize that part, but the top down does matter and governance does matter. Mm -hmm. And so well before ESG became very topical in, 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 in investing, from the start, when I started investing in emerging markets, um, October 2003, uh, the governance piece uh, was, was sort of front and center. And that was a reflection of both of my personal experience as well as my experience as an investment banker where uh, I was sitting on the other side of the table along with the corporate or the company. And I realized that you really had to follow what the controlling shareholder uh, cared about because in emerging markets, the vast majority of companies have a controlling shareholder. Sometimes it's the state, sometimes it's a family. It's very, very rare to have a shareholder registry that's completely dispersed. Uh, and so understanding the motivations of the controlling shareholder are very important. And that's why governance is an important part of my, my process and philosophy. Yeah, it's an interesting part because, and we'll speak a bit more in depth about China later, but, but you can see sort of how the regulatory and the government impact on companies is very substantial there. We saw the end financial IPO that didn't go ahead. Uh, we see now interference in sort of the, the real estate market, which has large effects. How do you keep an eye on that? So we make the political governance, which is sort of, is it a rule of law country or is it a rule of party? China, a rule of man, Putin, Russia, yep. we make that an explicitly part of the DNA of our process. That if an analyst uh, cannot walk me through how this company is swimming in that political governance stream, as well as the corporate governance, how, how they treat minority shareholders, then that's an incomplete thesis. Uh, the thesis cannot just be, this is a company with a great strategy, a great management, great culture, uh, at a great valuation. It has to be also Tell me how predictable uh, the environment that they're operating in. And everything that has happened in the last several months in China is a, is a stark reminder that if you don't place these sorts of political governance and top-down considerations front and center in your process, then uh, you'll be surprised. And so while I, I fully acknowledge that the process in China can be opaque, you have to respect the rules of the road. And the rules of the road are different in every emerging market. Yeah. Uh, the rules of the road are very different in Russia as they are in China, as they are in Brazil or South Africa. And so if you want to invest, 
if you want to do it purely bottom up, I don't think you should be an investor in emerging markets. Yeah. So if we take sort of a high level view, um, I think many investors are aware of sort of the long term growth story behind emerging markets. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, US equities rally and they seem to go higher than everybody expected. Why would people invest at this point? So historically, there were two reasons to invest in emerging markets. One was the outsourcing story. So building cheaper, better, faster. And uh, TSMC and Taiwan and Infosys are examples of successful e and business models in that sort of theme. Another was convergence, that as income levels rose, that households would want a car, a mortgage, a house, and, and uh, maybe HDFC in India and Walmex in Mexico are good examples of successful business models that play on that convergence thing. But what we're increasingly seeing is a third reason to invest in emerging markets, which, which is innovation. And this is where technology-enabled companies are solving EM frictions in completely new ways. You have to appreciate that emerging markets is home to a, a, a lot of great economic inequities and uneven access to both healthcare, financial services, and so on and so forth. And so some of the most exciting companies that we're seeing today are the ones that are innovating to address those issues, address those obstacles. Uh, and, and so I would say that certainly if you were to strip out the Apples and Googles from the US equity performance, that, that the US equity performance wouldn't look as robust. But I think the picture going forward for emerging markets is we have three reasons to invest in emerging markets. The third one is that emerging uh, innovative ideas and growth. We offer interesting growth at much more attractive valuations. And so uh, I fully admit that the last uh, 10 years have been sort of pedestrian returns for emerging market equities, but um, it's been uneven. Uh, certainly there have been some stellar uh, outstanding companies like a Tencent out of China that has performed in line, if not even better than some of those US equity stars. And so it is very much so about choosing the right business models for the right future. And the future for emerging markets, uh, so long as you're sort of well positioned along one of those three themes, I think does look bright. Yeah, yeah. You, you've written a couple of papers on uh, this theme of innovation and technology. And I thought you made an interesting observation there that, you know, the me mechanical engineering cycle is, is quite long, two to five years, while this is more about software and this can change in a couple of weeks. Does that mean that perhaps some of these growth stories play out quicker than people expect? Absolutely. What I, we were talking about there was sort of the vehicle, uh, electric vehicle revolution. China utterly has failed to create com globally competitive uh, auto manufacturers focused on internal combustion engines. The process of bending metal and manufacturing engines is actually quite hard and it requires a significant amount of investment. But the electric vehicle provides a window, an opportunity for China to sort of leapfrog because electric vehicles, there are fewer moving mechanical parts. It's much more about software, how you manage the, the power. And so therefore that provides an entry for somebody like a China to catch up. And we find we find a lot of interesting electric vehicle manufacturers in China that are not don't have the sort of legacy issues that internal combustion engine auto manufacturers have. And of course, it would play to the strengths of China that some of these uh, components, the batteries, for example, are manufactured in China. Uh, and so if, chi if China wanted to move up the value added curve, which it does, China wants to move out of the middle income trap, it needs to move up and start uh, manufacturing more complex uh, end products uh, that it could export to the rest of the world. And so innovation is key for escaping the middle income trap. Countries like Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, 
Turkey have failed to escape the middle income trap because there's insufficient amount of innovation. And the Chinese Mandarins fully appreciate that. And this is why they are um, certainly driving to innovate because they want to move up the value added curve. They want to move into upper income status. So it's a big driver behind the growth. So, of course, we are today in a very strange environment, so to speak, uh, with the pandemic still going on in many places in the world. Can you tell me a little bit of an idea of how that has affected your investment thinking and, and perhaps some of the, the different effects on the different regions within the emerging markets? Perhaps I'll start with the second question first. Why was there so much disparity? Countries which did well had three common factors. They had prior experience with pandemics, so MERS, SARS, Asian swine flu. Uh, there was a less philosophical conflict between the needs of the community and the needs of the individual, so this freedom versus the needs of the community. And there was less income uh, inequality. Those are countries that have less income disparity did well. And why would that be? Well, think of when Mumbai or Jakarta locked down. 20, 30, 40% of those cities have uh, informal workers, the ones that do shine your shoes or sell food at the, the corner shops. And if you, there's no people traffic because of the lockdown, um, they can't make a living. And so what happened was they brought COVID back to their villages and to the interior. And so those countries that had stark Gini coefficient differences uh, were more likely to experience a worse uh, COVID outcome. And so not surprisingly, which are the, three, which are the countries that, that did well? North Asia, China, Korea, Vietnam, and Taiwan did particularly well. Uh, the rest of emerging markets, even today, uh, continue to struggle with COVID. Uh, vaccination rates, for example, in Latin America are less than 30%. In South Africa, 10%. Rest of Africa, 5%. India, less than 30%. And so it's no surprise that the alpha variant came from China. The Delta variant came from India, and I'm sure the Landum, the Mu, and all of the other ones that are coming are going to also come from emerging markets because emerging markets, frontier markets, will act as a reserve to allow the virus to mutate. And so this is why it's so important that, that global vaccination rates rise because I think in developed markets, we sort of have this sense that it's in the rearview mirror or almost in the rearview mirror. But the sad truth is that large parts of humanity still uh, are not where they need to be in terms of vaccination. So um, how this played out was certainly the countries that had it under control were able to not have to live through lockdowns as long as the rest of us did, um, and certainly could return to some sense of normalcy. And the economic damage as a result was much less. Uh, so it is about political governance, the ability to execute on this plan of lockdowns, uh, of being able to put trackers on your phone to make sure you actually were quarantining. And uh, some countries did much better at that than others. How this affected my because the country decision is part of my process, um, those discussions about which countries are well positioned with COVID and which ones are not, that also became part of the conversation. And so uh, my process did not evolve. The questions I was asking evolved. Why is this country doing better? Can they get further up the vaccination curve? Uh, what is the government's attitude uh, toward quarantining? These are the kinds of things that we would ask in order to sort of make a decision of which countries were an assessment of which countries are going to be better prepared. And, and consequently, we did quite well uh, in a very difficult environment because, again, we put those top-down considerations in, in, in a very important part of our process. So did that throw up any sort of opportunities that perhaps were unexpected when you added those additional questions into your process? Certainly, we had to change around the business models that we thought were attractive. 
um, obviously rising consumption levels, rising discretionary income would play well to casinos, gambling. Uh, and that was one of those, for example, investments that we were making before COVID hit. We had to make some tough decisions uh, in those dark days in, in February, March, and April. And as one of those decisions that we made was that business models that were not going to do well in a COVID and pandemic, especially in countries that we're not going to likely have it under control, those business models, even though they were great managed businesses, um, we needed to make some hard decisions. We sold them. Yep. And uh, those business models where COVID perhaps would accelerate adoption. So think groceries online or restaurant food delivery online. Uh, instead of consumers sort of taking five, six, eight years to sort of slowly change habits, that COVID was going to force a much earlier adoption. And so I would say that, that COVID prompted a lot of soul searching about which business models were going to do well. And that's what we did. We made, we made some important pivots and changes to the portfolio when we were able to sort of come to the conclusion where, where the direction of the pandemic was likely to go in emerging markets. So to a degree that innovation theme is propelled forward by the COVID pandemic in, in certain parts of the, of the industry. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Innovation in business model, innovation in intellectual property, experimentation, breaking consumers out of their usual habits. A lot of these business models required an opportunity for consumers to try. Yeah. And, and certainly COVID provided that opportunity in a harsh way. I wouldn't have chosen that to be the way, but in a harsh way. And, and when consumers tried um, home delivery of basic groceries, why would you go back? Why drive a car to find parking to sort of find the right uh, supermarket that may not have what you're looking for? It's so much easier. It does simplify life. And a lot of these companies are able to sort of uh, have business models that can make it economic to make those deliveries. Yeah, that, that was one of my questions as well. How much do you think of that change behavior is going to stick around? Because I think, yeah, that, like delivery of groceries for, for some people will have opened their eyes, especially I think I've spoken to a couple of people that didn't realize that it's very easy to get over the amount to get free delivery. And they say, once that hurdle is passed, they're like, okay, this, this is so much easier. But at the other end, sometimes people just want to go out and have a chat and they use those type of things for an excuse and that might not change. But how, how do you sort of assess whether these behaviors stick around? So I think it would be fair to say that nobody knows what normalcy will look like once we get out of this COVID pandemic. Yeah. I would say that consumers are going to ex have experimented and I think there'll be some that will some behaviors that will change permanently. But I still think we're human at the end. We need that human contact. We need to be able to go to a lounge and sit and catch up with friends. We need to be able to go to a, try a new dinner. Uh, and so I think uh, it's fair to say that some behaviors are, are going to change and, and some are going to sort of regress to what humans, we are social animals, um, but perhaps you could be a social animal through the internet. I am perhaps the, not the target audience, but if you could imagine that uh, maybe if you're an awkward Generation Z, maybe you could meet up with uh, others who share your interests online. And so who am I to decide that that is strange or unnatural? Um, that is also a form of communication, another form of interaction. And so I think I would say that, that perhaps we had a, a jolt, uh, sort of a, a espresso shot uh, to a lot of these new business models. 
but I would suspect that more of the consumer behavior is going to be altered and changed as a result of COVID than I think people appreciate. Yeah. So online shopping, uh, data centers, those are sort of direct beneficiaries from, from these type of trends. Are there any sort of sectors that are less obvious that you think might have accelerated on the, on the pandemic? Um, I, I think that um, there are businesses that are looking to break down barriers uh, on the B2B side. If you think the, the tendency has been in developed markets that uh, formal retailing with uh, data analysis of what consumers are buying and scale advantages, economies of scale and buying from suppliers gave uh, a Walmart uh, a huge advantage over the Walmart mom and pop stores. But you can envision a scenario where uh, because the internet gives you choice that that maybe there could be websites that could give small and medium-sized businesses an opportunity to tap into that. And so uh, servicing the small and medium-sized businesses and their needs and sort of be able to move them from a storefront, physical storefront to an online storefront, uh, people do crave uh, not the carbon copies that you could find at your neighborhood store uh, that a big corporate has decided that that's what consumers want. I think authenticity would also be something that's attractive. And so I think connecting small, medium-sized businesses and facilitating that, whether through payments, through establishing their own, uh, helping them to establish their own websites or providing scale in terms of, we have 20 million consumers that wanted to shop in something different. I think that's perhaps a little more unexpected. And we're beginning to see those kind of business models, not the sort of typical Alibaba's uh, or Amazon's, we're beginning to see those kind of business models that are connecting small, medium-sized entrepreneurs to end customers. And I think, or helping uh, them to do that, uh, I find those to be unexpectedly uh, interesting. Yeah, so th those are the sort of the businesses that, you know, <laughs> were not necessarily at the forefront of, of going online and, and changing. And I think you see it a little bit around here in a small scale as well, where Maybe your local record shop would not have a big online business, but was basically forced to do that and make that change. Is, is that sort of the type of changes you're talking about? Um, where I live, uh, if I were to go to a Whole Foods or any one of the other large uh, big box formal retailing, they may not have the guanciale that I'm looking to buy to make my uh, matijana sauce. But shockingly, now there's a website that's connecting me to a small North End, which here in Boston is Italian uh, uh, sort of uh, section that sells uh, guanciale. And, uh, and I don't even have to drive all the way there. I could either pick it up there or actually they can have it delivered to me for a small surcharge. And so I think that kind of facilitating true uh, retailers, I mean, in a sense, what retailing was, I mean, you, you choose what you think consumers want or need. But imagine if you can do that at the more micro level and more creative level and somehow bring that yet to scale. And so I, I think there are great business models that I think governments given, facing populism pressure about big tech uh, and what the formal retailers have done to commerce. Um, I think these are the kinds of businesses that might prove to be much more durable, that we are facilitating the entrepreneurs, the small mom and pops we're not hampering them. We're actually helping them elevate, level the playing field, democratizing the internet. That sounds a lot more interesting, I would think. And perhaps one day, uh, big tech in these countries will be regulated, much like they are now in China. 
And that opens a window for these small and medium-sized businesses uh, to do better. So let's talk a little bit about China because China is a big part of the emerging markets. Um, how, how do you look at, at China? Do you have an overweight, underweight? What are some of the opportunities there? China is certainly the 800-pound panda in the room. It is a tremendous success story. Uh, it has lifted hundreds of millions of people from low income to middle income status. It has been an astonishing story, but uh, it is not uh, run like the rest of the emerging markets. I will point out, however, that since the World War II, there have only been five countries, only five countries that have successfully made the transition from low income to middle income to high income. Hong Kong and Singapore, which you could argue uh, those are city-states not really applicable to larger geographies, uh, Korea, Taiwan, and Israel. And what all five countries had in common is innovation, but it's also four out of the five were not democracies uh, at critical parts of their economic development. So democracies not cover themselves in glory. But uh, the, the task of going from low income to middle income is hard. The task of going from middle income to upper income is even harder. And uh, China certainly is uh, evolving in ways that are different. Korea and Taiwan have since become democracies, noisy democracies. Um, but perhaps we in the West are thinking of it wrong. Uh, maybe they have found a different formula. What I would say is that uh, we've exited a sort of period of regulatory bombardment, lots of microeconomic reforms. But we have to say the nature of the, the system hasn't really changed. It's opaque. Uh, there's a lack of rule of law. And, but you have to appreciate the Mandarins understand that in order to escape middle-income trap, they have to allow the private sector goose to lay the golden eggs, innovation. And so a part of what we're seeing with this regulatory um, oversight is regulating big tech that in some ways I kind of wish we did were able to do in the West. Uh, we have failed. We have failed to regulate big tech in the West. And there are certainly market abuses that we could certainly spend a whole hour talking about. <laughs> but uh, the China model is different. There are no open parliamentary inquiries. There are no candidates laying out a platform so the market can sort of start pricing in change in government policy. A lot of this, to many investors, come out as regulatory thunderbolts from the blue. But I think you have to appreciate that there is a method to the madness. The rules of the law are very clearly laid out by the Chinese Communist Party. And the three policies that they wish to push are, as identified in the last sort of five-year plan, is localization, which is a nice way of saying innovation, decarbonization, and carbon prosperity. Those are the four key goals. And in order to be politically correct, which in a Chinese context is very different than that in the West, in order to be politically correct, your companies should be supporting those three goals. And those companies that are not supporting those three goals are operating in a gray zone. And that's where the regulatory thunderbolts will come. And so again, if you make if you make this part of your process and just say, where is the Communist Party would like to take China? And where should we invest? We should be investing with policy. Then you're less surprised. Uh, your companies will be less affected directly. Uh, certainly, our, my, my Chinese stocks have been hit by contagion. All Chinese stocks have sold off. Uh, but I've avoided the other ones where they were off a lot more because they were in the sort of regulatory crosshairs. So I think if you appreciate that every country's goals are different and how they interact between economics and policymakers as well as the private enterprise, if you take those into consideration when investing, you'll be less likely to be surprised. And so what I'm excited about in China 
are much like I said before, technology enabled solutions which solve local problems. And I can give you several examples of those. Companies that are formed part of the renewable theme, the so decarbonization is very important. And innovative companies in healthcare and technology. Those are the three key areas that we find most exciting in China. Um, we obviously would de-emphasize other parts of China. And the good news is that there are plenty of great opportunities in those three themes that I've identified. Yeah, so one of these themes is decarbonization and China has committed to net zero by 2060. So 10 years after sort of what the, the Paris Agreement is planning, but nevertheless, a commitment there. How serious do you think they'll stick to that commitment? You know, because as a still developing economy, you could arguably say it's more carbon intensive than, than the developed world. So how serious are they about it in your opinion? The biggest story to come out of 2020 is certainly COVID. But the second biggest story, an underappreciated story, is exactly that, China's commitment to carbon neutrality by 2060. I think it's very incredible for several reasons. Let's start with national security reasons first. There's a yawning gap, a significant gap between domestic production of crude oil and domestic consumption of oil. And that balance must be imported mostly through the Malacca Straits. A certain blue water Navy uh, or certain nuclear powered submarine country would be able to block and starve the Chinese economy of crude oil. Uh, that represents a national security risk uh, for China. Point number two, for economic reasons. So much of the solar and wind supply chains are in China. 80% of the entire solar supply chain capacity is located in China. So if China wants to move the value added curve, that's a fantastic area to sort of focus your attention. There are now more workers employed by the renewable industry, broadly spoke, speaking, in China than in the coal industry. So the pain of transition won't be as great as it might have been sort of 20 years ago. And the cost of producing electricity from solar and onshore wind is actually closed. The gap is closed with producing electricity from coal-fired plants. And so no subsidies are needed to encourage solar and wind. So for good economic reasons, it makes sense. And then lastly, for environmental reasons. We see this in, even in developed markets. When a country becomes, when the, when the majority of the country, the middle income becomes a majority, suddenly policymakers must pivot. It's not economic development at all costs. I mean, we polluted our environments at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. We employed child labor. But in the United States and in Europe, uh, and, and pretty much uh, as other countries became more developed, um, once middle income, middle, the middle class became the majority of the voting population, policy pivoted. We started to see the environmental laws being passed. Uh, and the same is happening in China. Social disturbances in China are increasingly driven by pollution. The middle, China has achieved a significant share of its population and middle income status. And so now it's changing the narrative. And then the last point to mention on environmental reasons is that China is much less efficient in carbon emissions per GDP capita, you know, per GDP dollar of capita produced uh, when compared to the US and, and Europe. And so if China really wants to be seen as a serious player on the world stage, they need to do their part. So being responsible for a third of carbon emissions is a uh, big starting point for them to sort of cut. So for those three reasons, national security reasons, economic reasons, environmental reasons, I believe it's a very credible uh, commitment by the part of the Chinese authorities. Yeah, it's it's uh, an interesting issue because there, there is that element of pollution as well to this whole decarbonization story and an environmental story in China. And I, I spoke once with a, a, a professor who, who studied China's history, and he said, you must not forget that for a long time, China was just a, 
amalgamation of different warlords. And one of the things that the Communist Party is most scared about is, uh, you know, social uprising uh, or, you know, social riots and, and that that cohesion falls apart. And to a degree, that drives then also this environmental policy because they want to make sure that there's enough sort of happiness of the middle classes to keep them content. What do you think about that? Is, is that do you see that as a driver of this decarbonization as well or, or the policy making? To show you how serious decarbonization is, a key factor in the scorecard for civil servants. And if you want to, if you're the mayor of some tier four, tier five city, and want to become eventually the governor of a major province, um, historically, the only thing that mattered was growth, 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 growth at all costs. It didn't matter the environmental damage, the sustainability of that growth, the leverage intensity of that growth, growth. And the scorecard has changed. The scorecard in order to get promoted now includes an element of uh, how many social disturbances are there in your geography? And if all those, if the vast majority of the social disturbances are increasingly driven by environmental concerns, uh, parents complaining, no, I don't want a steel factory located right next to the, the primary school. Um, if that's the cause of uh, social disturbances, then the local, at, even at the local government level, that environmentalism is going to play a larger role in what used to be only uh, a focus on growth. And so I think that the political regime in China has pivoted and is can, and has considered uh, decarbonization for many reasons, including um, a way of sort of reducing uh, social disturbances. Yeah. So you've been investing in emerging markets for, for a long time, uh, since 2003. So when you look back, what, what are sort of your, can you name one of your best decisions and one of your worst decisions and what did you learn from it? Well, I always believe that you learn more from your mistakes than your successes. So I'll start with a mistake. When social media was first beginning to make an impact, I frankly didn't understand it. Uh, I expected the impact, uh, business impact, the potential business impact was going to be rather limited. I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine sharing my own personal details and opinions for others to see. And if you truly are a friend of mine, shouldn't you simply pick up the phone and let's go have dinner? Uh, and so I think one of the lessons I learned there, clearly I was wrong. Uh, one of the lessons is that sometimes you are not the target audience, and sometimes you become the target audience as you change. Uh, and so I think there was a lack of appreciation that uh, who I was and how my life would change. And certainly to be able to find other like-minded individuals and forming a community that way was something that had not occurred to me. And how you monetize that uh, had not yet occurred to me. But of course, over time, I gained to appreciate that. And obviously, those are, form some of the most compelling economic investment, investments in, in, in not only emerging markets, but developed markets as well. So I would say I underestimated the potential for social media to make a, a business impact. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of uh, a great success, um, I would say that we often look at ESG through a different lens. You have to appreciate that emerging markets are behind developed markets in many respects. I mean, having or mandating fully independent board of directors is a relatively recent phenomenon in developed markets. Many times, I think it's more in emerging markets about the trajectory. And so companies that have never had an independent board member, having chosen one, is progress. Uh, 
um, having better gender representation on a board or management team is progress. Certainly falls short of Scandinavian levels of, of governance. Um, but I think some of my best investments have been um, figuring out when there was going to be a change in governance for the better, uh, where a controlling family patriarch was handing the reins to the next generation. And that next generation thought that actually we do want to engage with minority shareholders. We do want to hear what they have to say. We do want to incorporate their comments into our, our planning. Uh, it is a source of, of strength to be able to speak to shareholders, all shareholders. And so I think my, it's reinforced the importance of looking at governance, but it's also reinforced that emerging markets, you have to adapt. It isn't just about the standard, but it's the trajectory. Yeah, it's about the journey. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for this, Daniel. That was a great conversation. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.